Good morning. Would you please open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll read from verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, it is a light unto our path. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce down into the depths of our hearts, our hearts which are prone to deceive us and sinfulness. Lord, we pray that you would, by your word and the extraordinary work of your spirit, apply your truth, your gospel to us this morning. May we receive it and submit to it and obey it. And Father, give you all glory and honor as we worshipfully respond to you by it. Father, we pray that you would guide the preaching of your word. And may my words be your words. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, Pastor Mike preached on the passage just before this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you remember, we're told there that the church, the local church, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul reminds us that the truth of the gospel is seen most clearly and preserved most safely within the construct of a healthy local church. Though this is an encouraging reminder... Perhaps if we let our minds wander for a bit, we could think about how precarious the truth of the gospel and the church seems today. It certainly seems, at least in some quarters, that the pillar and the buttress of the church seems more like ancient ruins that you'd see in Greece instead of the mighty strength of, say, the Pentagon. Not only are many churches no longer upholding the truth of the gospel, there are many false gospels being proclaimed by those who call themselves the church. And this makes sense. This was happening even in the days of the apostles, and it continues even today, and it will continue to happen until glory. Not only are the outside factors increasingly pushing in to crowd out and subject and push back the truth of the gospel, I think we'd have to admit that even many inside forces are working to destroy the work of the gospel. Certainly one of those destructive forces are those people who claim the name of Christian, but their lives are anything but. They may go to church and do churchy things, but they also go to other places and do other things that ought not to be done. Unrepentant sin within the church is bad. But there's something else Scripture points out that is just as bad, perhaps even worse because of its subtlety, and that's the destructive work of legalism. Legalism is simply requiring other things, others to do things, 
in order to establish or, or add to our right standing with God, which God in his word has not commanded us to do. Our passage this morning, though relatively short, is integral, essential to how we think about the gospel, how we think about our godliness and our worship to God, but it does so by highlighting the destructiveness of legalism. I pray that as we examine this passage, God might stir our hearts to worship and adore, and I'd say even enjoy him more in all of life. The passage breaks down simply into two main sections. The first section in verses 1 through 3 describes the false teaching which Paul warns us to keep out of the church. And then the second section in verses 3 through 5, the second half of verse 3, which shows us the right teaching which Paul strongly argues for from Scripture. Now, Paul begins by telling us that this false teaching, which has apparently been plaguing the Ephesian church that he's writing to, has not come out of thin air. In fact, he tells us that this was something Christians should have already known about because the Spirit of God himself has already given this warning. Look at verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That phrase, the Spirit expressly says, is a phrase which describes God's special revelation. Paul's actually alluding here to something Jesus himself said in Matthew 24. Back in Matthew 24, the 12 disciples asked Jesus about the last days. What's that going to look like, Christ? When will your return happen? And his answer is striking because essentially he says that after his death and resurrection, the last days will have already arrived. In other words, the last days are those days between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, so that both Paul, Timothy, and all of the early church were living in the last days, just like you and I are now living in these last days. So in Matthew 24, verses 10 and 11, Jesus prophesies this, that in those later days, many will fall away and betray one another. He says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. The same thing that Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy 4. And indeed, Paul's already spoken about many in the Ephesian church, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have fallen away, made a shipwreck of their faith, who have, as Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 20, been handed over to Satan by God. And here he says that the reason they're departing from the faith is because they're devoting themselves to Satan. See there? To deceitful spirits and to the teachings or the doctrines of demons. Are these people falling away and following after demonic teachings because Satan himself is meeting with them face to face and luring them away? Well, yes and no. Paul says in verse 2 that Satan is doing this through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That is, Satan is luring people away from the faith through false teachers. Teachers who have themselves seared their consciences and have failed to distinguish between truth and error. Teachers who cannot distinguish between godliness and unrighteousness or between God and Satan himself. That's what Paul means when he says that they are insincere or hypocritical liars. These are teachers who in the public eye express godliness and even appear to be godly. But in fact, in their hearts and in their private lives, they are anything but. In fact, Paul says that 
their hearts and consciences are seared. That's a striking statement. First, perhaps many of us need to be reminded of what the conscience actually is. I want to take a little bit of time to look at this because this is such an important aspect to all of our lives, we uh, as Christians or not. I'm afraid many of us don't actually think about this. The conscience is that God-given organ of spiritual sensitivity through which God brings his word to bear on people. It's that inward power of moral self-knowledge and judgment, dealing with questions of right and wrong, of duty, according to what God's word has said. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 commands us to examine ourselves and truly judge ourselves. This is the work of the conscience. The conscience, according to Romans 2.15, bears witness for or against our works and deeds. And again, Paul states in Acts 24 that he himself strains. He works tirelessly and hard to have a clear conscience before God and men. J.I. Packer accurately writes that it is a universal experience that the conscience is largely autonomous in its operation. Though sometimes we can suppress or stifle it, it normally speaks independently of our will and sometimes indeed even contrary to our will. We want this, but the conscience says, "Ah, probably not. So when the conscience speaks, it is in a strange way distinct from us. It stands over us, addressing us with an absoluteness of authority, which we didn't give it, and we can't take from it. Think if we could personify conscience. It would be seen as God's watchman or spokesman within our very own souls. That's why John Bunyan, in his book, The Holy War, describes the conscience as a preacher within a man's heart. The conscience, as preacher, takes the word of God and makes it to resound throughout a man's walk and life. And yet, here's the danger which Paul highlights here in 1 Timothy 4. All people have consciences, and all people are prone to searing their consciences. That's what he says these false teachers have done. The language of a seared conscience here is equivalent to the image of someone getting cauterized, cauterized, branded by a hot poker. The flesh where a cow is branded is now dead flesh. There's no nerve endings. There's no feeling. There's now no life. In that flesh. If we're honest, perhaps we may know a little bit of what this is like. We've known times when the sins we've committed have plunged us into deep sorrow and true repentance because of our consciences, tender, guided by God's word. It speaks out against our sin. We're convicted and uncomfortable. And this is good. But perhaps you've also known that inward experience of hearing and feeling the pull of your conscience. But instead, you you push through, attempting to silence that conviction, pushing your conscience down to stifle and quiet it. This is a terrifying place to be because on the outside, you're still pretending to be godly, to be a Christian. You may go to church every week, but sin no longer brings conviction. And so what you've become is a hypocrite. In fact, perhaps you're here this morning as someone who's spent a lifetime of suppressing and quieting your conscience. So now there is, in fact, no conviction over sin at all. What God has said is evil, you yourself heartily, if not quietly, enjoy. What used to be wrong and strange or taboo is now the pleasure you constantly crave. And your heart isn't troubled one bit. This is what Paul means by a seared conscience. If this troubles you, 
And the word of God in scripture is making you uncomfortable now concerning your conscience. Well, then praise God. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ in faith. And as the author of Hebrews says, the blood of Christ will purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, may we all take very seriously the work of watching over our consciences. It is the difference between death and life. But what needs to be seen here is that Paul connects a person's theology with his conscience and with his private life. See there in the text? A man's downward spiral into sin, a life devoid of any spiritual work to put sin to death, not watching or protecting his conscience, leads to and is connected to a man's wrong theology. Other places in the New Testament, Paul tells us that sometimes it's wrong theology which leads to an unrighteous life. Wherever you start, though, the connection is there. Theology and life always go together. If a man cannot discern between right and wrong living, he won't be able to discern between true and false doctrine or vice versa. What was it that these hypocritical false teachers were teaching? What was this doctrine of demons, this this theology which came from the pits of hell itself? Look at verse 3. They forbid marriage and required abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Does that surprise you? That what Paul connects with demonic teaching is the idea of giving up certain foods, certain things in the name of godliness? Really, Paul? They're just wanting people to be godly and and not indulge themselves. Well, we'll see in a minute why this is really bad, but let's just take a minute to unpack what Paul is and isn't saying. Paul isn't saying here that these false teachers are personally giving up some things, like a kind of fast in their quest for godliness. No, he says that hypocritically, in the name of godliness, they are commanding everyone to abstain from marriage and from certain foods which God meant to be enjoyed. So again, this isn't the same thing as when Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 said that he personally chose to abstain from marriage for the sake of his godly ministry. And it's not the same thing because in that very same chapter, if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells everyone that it is good for a man to be married and have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Or again, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that all Christians have the God-given right and liberty to eat whatever they want. Indeed, he tells us, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this teaching is in light of the fact that Paul himself at times abstained from certain foods, because he didn't want somebody with a weaker conscience to stumble. He refrained at certain times only out of love for his weaker brother. But one thing we never see Paul do is forbid all Christians to abstain from marriage or food or drink. You'll never find Paul teaching that some people are godlier than others because they don't eat certain foods or don't give themselves to marriage. He doesn't assume... And neither should we think that if something like not eating meat is wise for us, then therefore it should be mandatorily wise for everyone else. Will Mori Ramos, who isn't here this morning, we were discussing earlier uh, this week this very passage, and Will immediately asked, well, what about the Old Testament and all the food laws that we see there? It seems like certain foods were restricted then. God commanded that. I told Will, yes, he was right. There certainly were dietary restrictions which God commanded his people to uphold. 
But those were temporary restrictions in God's overall plan of salvation, used by God to mark out and highlight the religious ethnic distinction of the Jews from the rest of the people surrounding them at that time. But ever since Christ came and fulfilled those laws and inaugurated a new covenant for all people from every tribe and every nation, these food restrictions have been done away with. In fact, Jesus declares in Mark chapter 7, and God tells Peter in Acts chapter 10, that there are no longer any food restrictions for God's people. You might say, okay, that sounds fine. So what? What does that really have to do with us here and now? This really isn't a false teaching that seems to be plaguing the church and and threatening the gospel, maybe something like Islam or, or Jehovah's Witnesses. It certainly is significant that both Islam and Jehovah's Witnesses forbid certain foods, as ungodly? In fact, doesn't it say something about Christianity that out of all the major world religions, Christians alone can enjoy bacon? If you're not a Christian this morning and that doesn't convince you, I don't know what will. But this false teaching that does pervade our modern era is serious. You can walk right down the street to St. Hugh's Catholic Church and witness this teaching in its full strength, where it is official church doctrine that priests cannot and should not get married. Marriage is forbidden for those the Catholic Church sees as in a different class of godliness. I wonder if we even have to leave our own evangelical circles to see this kind of teaching. I've known many good confessing evangelicals who have, in the name of godliness, attempted to convince me that certain good things that God has created for our enjoyment should in fact be abandoned altogether and abstained from. In younger generations, this looks like abstaining from all things that aren't organic. No processed food, no sodas, nothing that isn't natural. Of course, they may be right to point out the health issues that arise from eating junk foods and fast foods, but it becomes a matter of wrong doctrine and legalism when they begin to look down their noses at others who do eat pizza and Pop-Tarts. As if God himself saw it as sinful to eat anything that doesn't come straight from the farm to the table. In older generations, it may have looked like forbidding the drinking of wine or beer. Certainly, this was the case during the Prohibition when it was argued that it was sinful to drink wine or beer. And though it is good and at times incredibly wise for people to never drink, it becomes legalism to argue that it is a sin for anybody to drink. This, of course, flies against the testimony of Scripture, which throughout both the Old Testament and New Testament, and even into the new heavens and new earth, Wine is seen as a good gift from God to be enjoyed in moderation. Indeed, Christ himself is described as drinking wine often. And it is Christ himself who both began his ministry by turning water into wine, as well as ending his ministry by using wine during his last supper in establishing the church's practice of communion. Many have argued that what the Bible calls wine is not what we know as wine today, and in fact had little to no alcohol back then. But the biblical witness itself tells us that, in fact, it was alcoholic because the Pharisees charged Jesus in Matthew eleven nineteen with being a drunkard. It would have been an incoherent statement to call someone a drunkard for drinking grape juice. Here, here's some water, but don't get drunk off of it. Indeed, the very commandments throughout Scripture, like we see in Ephesians 5, which warn us against getting drunk, presupposes that wine contained alcohol enough to get somebody drunk. So don't get drunk. But the point that needs to be maintained here is that 
things that God says are good and are from him should not be considered bad and sinful. Why? Well, for three reasons. The first reason we actually see in verse 3. What God created to be received should be received with thanksgiving by those who believe the truth. God is good, and he's a good creating God. A God who in the beginning created all the world, and then after it was completed in all its beauty, created mankind and put them within the world and said, enjoy it all. All of this is yours, and I've given it to you to enjoy in thanksgiving to me. Keith read that earlier this morning in Genesis 1, where God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In fact, repeated ten times throughout Genesis 1, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. To deny what God has given us is good, and to abstain from his good gifts as if they were bad, is to put ourselves in the place of God. And this is why Paul says this is a doctrine of demons. It's always been Satan's desire to be in the place of God. And ever since the beginning, Satan has been tempting mankind with the very same thing. Paul underlines this in verses 4 and 5, where Paul actually alludes to Genesis 1. He says, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the second reason why this demonic legalism is so bad. It denies the word of God. Not only are we putting ourselves in the place of God, we're denying the sufficiency of God's word. If God has said in his word that we can enjoy certain drink and foods and enjoy marriage and, and intimacy within marriage, then we're bound by that authority and sufficiency of his word to affirm affirm it and conform ourselves to it. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, as more and more people are and as more and more lawyers are, what about marijuana? God gave us the marijuana plant. Clearly, God says in Genesis that I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, and behold, it is good. Pastor Steve, are you arguing that we should be okay with people smoking weed? And my answer is no, we should not be okay with that. For the same reason the Bible argues against and commands us to not get drunk with wine. Because it takes us out of sober thinking. Drunkenness is sinful because it is a misuse of wine. So too is it a misuse to partake in anything which God has given us in order to take us out of our right and sober mind. A good friend of mine has argued this well by looking at the coquetry. God has created In perfect splendor, the coca tree. It is a good tree, just as all things that God has made are good. And we, with our God-given ingenuity and creativity, have harnessed the coca tree to produce good things like Coca-Cola, a good use for our refreshment, pleasure, and enjoyment. But we've also harnessed the coca tree to produce things like cocaine, and out of that crack cocaine, both highly destructive and highly addictive drugs. Coca-Cola is a good use of God's good creation. Cocaine is a sinful misuse. Things like hemp and perhaps even the controlled medical use of marijuana are good uses of that plant. Getting high after work is not. Wine, enjoyed in moderation, is a good thing. Getting drunk is not. Eating all kinds of foods and enjoyment of God's goodness to us is good. Gluttony is not. 
Marriage and the intimate enjoyment of one's spouse is good and worshipful. Adultery, polygamy, and lust is not. The issue here is that in our propensity to steer clear of misuse, people, many times in religious fervor, go too far in the other direction forbidding our enjoyment of God's good creation. All religions do this. It is our natural sinful human tendency to go too far in that direction. But Paul tells us here that nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. If the word of God tells us that he has given us things to enjoy, and you, created in his image, want to enjoy that thing, then enjoy it. And in prayer, thank him for his goodness in richly providing these things. Well, the third reason this legalism is so bad and actually comes from hell itself is because it denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the section just before this? Chapter 3, especially verse 16. Paul tells us in a striking passage that the mystery of godliness is the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see that? He doesn't argue that the trick to godliness is bound up in what we firstly do or don't do, in what we abstain from or in what we partake in. What he says is that godliness is bound up in the person and work of Christ. He who is manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. When we begin saying that godliness is a matter of what we've given up and what we've begun Uh, to eat or not eat, well, then we've began to undercut the gospel. We've cut away at the work of Jesus Christ in living righteously on our behalf, in dying on our behalf, and in being raised to new life on our behalf. You see? The gospel tells us that our salvation is in Christ alone. Legalism tells us that God requires more from us than faith in Christ alone. Legalism claims that Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient Legalism tells us that somehow our works enhance or make better the work that Christ has done. This is why Paul uses such strong language to denounce and condemn these false teachers. If you're here this morning as someone who has thought of Christianity as just a list of rules to make God happy with you, please abandon this demonic and satanic teaching. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, divine and eternal, and crushed him as a man and punished him for our sin so that in him alone we might now have righteousness and a right standing before God. So I want to end by asking this question. How do we as Christians resist this devilish tendency? Two simple ways. First, give no room to those who demand that our righteousness is bound up in what we do or do not eat and drink. The biblical theologian D.A. Carson tells the story of a time when he went out to dinner with a group of pastors, and Carson, knowing that one of the men in the group tended towards alcoholism, ordered only water as a drink, not wanting to cause his brother to sin or be tempted to sin. He rightly abstained. But then he tells of another similar time with a whole new group of men, and one of the men, a pastor, began saying, How sinful he thought it was when Christians, and especially pastors, drank wine in public at restaurants. As soon as the waiter arrived and asked for their order, D.A. Carson ordered a glass of port wine to go with his meal. In other words, be wise in your liberties 
In this example, D.A. Carson, like the Apostle Paul, understands that there are times to abstain from certain foods and drinks or activities out of love for others and for the gospel. But like Paul, he and we should refuse to let legalism undercut the gospel. Whereas the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 11, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Which leads me to the second and more fundamental and more powerful way of resisting legalism, which is by actually seeing all of life as worship and enjoyment to God. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 4 and 5. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. If God, in his word, tells us that we can enjoy God's good creation in good and proper ways, then if you want to enjoy it, enjoy it. And I emphasize that word, enjoy. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In fact, we glorify God, we worship God most and best when we enjoy him. And one of the ways God has given us to enjoy him is to enjoy the good gifts he, the good giver, has given us. This is what Paul means in verse 5, by setting things apart by the word and by prayer. That is, are you taking the ordinary, mundane, and good things of this earth, and through prayer and thanksgiving, turning it into moments of worshipful enjoyment? As you peel open a fresh orange, are you thanking God for the delightful experience of the citrus filling the air around you as you smell it, and then that wonderful experience of biting into that orange and being surprised yet again at how it gushes forth in its flavor? Are you thankful for how God sustained the tree in which the orange grew, maybe somewhere in Florida, and allowed farmers and men and women to cultivate that one orange which God knew you were going to eat? Indeed, this text is why Christians pray before we eat. God has liberally and richly supplied us with many good things to enjoy. And in worship and enjoyment of him, we thank him for it. But why stop at just eating? G.K. Chesterton writes, you say grace before meals. Okay. I say grace before the concert and before the opera. Grace before the play and the show. Grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink to write. You see, this puts us in the position of what Scripture makes clear, that God wants us to be happy in him and to see his goodness in all of life. And what amazing grace this is indeed, especially in light of our sinful standing before him. We don't deserve one second more of the good things provided here on earth. But God in his love and in his grace and in his goodness has continued to provide. As Christians, may we in good conscience delight ourselves in what God is delighted to give us. If you're not a Christian, I pray that you recognize the goodness of God towards you and what he's given. But even more so, that you would be led to repentance and turn in faith towards Jesus Christ, the greatest gift that he's given, so that in him your conscience would be free to enjoy God's saving love and everything else. Indeed, may we all strive to give ourselves to the full enjoyment of God in all of life. That's our right worship of our good God. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, you are good. We've only scratched the surface of what your goodness entails and of the goodness that you've given us. And Father, we pray, we repent for not taking seriously and thanking you enough for the good things that you've given us. We repent for attempting to find our righteousness and denying your good gifts. And Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us to enjoy you more and more, even on into glory and into the new heavens and new earth, where we will increase daily in our enjoyment of you through the things that you've created. We pray all these things to your glory and in Christ's name. Amen.